servant leadership or enabling people to make the best decisions they can or empowering people, then you can have less governance. Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you Kamala, taking the time to join us, with and we've got an amazing interview. We know you're going to love. My name is Kylie Council in London, UK. Welcome, Kate. Hello. So, Kate, I recently had the pleasure of hosting you at an event I was running. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that? Yes, so you really kindly invited me to come and talk to some of the teams at Citizens Advice Bureau about the work that I'm doing or we are doing at Hackney Council and how we are using agile thinking, user-centred design, and really thinking about how we do governance to build services so good that people prefer to use them. And how was the event for you? It was awesome, actually. It, it went really well, I thought. A really engaged group of people. I thought we had a really good conversation as part of... So I, so I came with some slides and I talked about our work, but actually what I really enjoyed was the conversation that was built into that, talking to people thinking who are, who are clearly trying to think differently about how they do things. Definitely. That was the brilliant bit of feedback afterwards from lots of members of the team was was about that conversation. So I thought it was great that you framed it in that way and allowed time for reflection rather than just a presentation. So thank you again. (laughs) On the show, we love to get a bit of a sense of how people got into their careers in digital and technology and in, in public service. And doing our research on you, we find that the early part of your career was really focused in marketing and communications for local and for central government. It's a really common pattern that we see for communication specialists to move into more digital and technology roles. What was your experience and, and why did you make that shift? Um, so I think you're right, it is a really common pattern. I think the two sectors have got an awful lot in common. So communications, I think, is fundamentally about your users. What do your users need to do and how do you get them the information that they need to be able to do the thing that they need to do? And so it's really easy to see the, the change from that to how do you build a service that allows users to do the thing that they need to do? And I often talk about in communications, people often talk about a good communications team when faced with someone saying, I want a leaflet, will say, that's really interesting. What are you actually trying to achieve? And let's talk to you about what the problem you're trying to solve. And a communications team that's more of a postbox will just say, yes, that's lovely. What, what colour would you like the leaflet? How many would you like? And when do you want them delivered? It's very similar in digital and technology. You can either say, yes, that shiny thing. When would you like us to buy it? Or you can start with, that's really interesting, what's the problem you're trying to solve? What do your users need to do? And what have we got that we can help you with? How can we help you solve that problem? And often the technology is one really small bit of that. Yeah, definitely. And that methodology part of it, it's often easy, I think, for us to forget that that way of working has been around before the trend of digital roles. And there are lots of people who have worked in that kind of way who it can be quite a natural fit for. So it's, it's great to see that it is possible to, to move between the two and to bring all of that knowledge. 
So you spent a number of years leading communications and then digital innovation at an organization called ACAS. So for our listeners who don't know what that organization does, they provide advice on employment issues and help to build relationships within the workplace. Can you share your thoughts on how to bring out the best in people you manage based on your experiences with ACAS and the employment space? As an organisation, it's very focused on good working practices and how to communicate with each other in teams and how to reduce conflict and how to manage conflict. So there's a lot of talk about that within the organisation. But I guess in my own experience, being a civil servant, sometimes it doesn't actually matter which department you're in. It's the, it's the same professional work, but it doesn't. So I've also worked at the cabinet office and the home office. Each organisation has a slightly different culture. And at ACAS, what I was really interested in was how can we best meet our users' needs and how can we best understand our users' needs. So the reason I went from Head of Communications to Director of Digital Innovation was because I was really interested in the communications team run and manage the website. The website is our most popular channel for users to actually get in contact with this. It's often the first way that they will find out who the organisation actually is. So I was also very interested in brand and brand recognition. And ACAS, ACAS's brand recognition isn't as high as it should be. And that journey took me to, well, hold on, if, if we're getting this many million hits to the website and we're getting this many phone calls to our helpline, how can we streamline how we give advice to our users so that we're making the best use of the channel that they're actually trying to reach us in? So that, that fit between communications and digital again. And actually, one of the first things I did was go and talk to Citizens Advice Bureau about the work that you had been doing because you'd had the same realisation but a few years earlier, so you were much further ahead of the curve than we were. Interestingly, we found that your role was carried out as a, a job share with a colleague of yours. With flexible working becoming increasingly popular and especially for people who are trying to balance multiple priorities, not just family but, but other careers and other interests as well, what did you find most helpful and then on the flip side, most difficult about running a job share? My job share with Michelle Bailey for 14 years in total. We did four jobs together in three different organisations. So we were a really awesome job share partnership. In fact, when we applied to ACAS, we applied as one person. And we said to them, you know, we're applying for this role to head of communications, but you need to interview us together. We're doing one application form. There is absolutely no point in us applying separately. We've done the same job for the last nine years. The good thing about it is that when you find someone that you can work so well with, you, you, you do seamlessly become one person, and you, it means that you manage the role really well and you manage the demands of a role. If you're trying to do that sort of job part-time, you often end up doing some of the job on Thursdays and Fridays if you work Monday to Wednesday, or you end up trying to negotiate giving up some bits of the role, or you you instinctively look for a job where maybe there isn't that much pressure. So having a job share partner and having that unit means that you can go for roles that maybe are more challenging. We have very different reasons for job sharing, and I think that really helped as well, so we weren't both trying to do the same thing. When it's working, there isn't a flip side. I guess if it isn't working... The flip side is probably that you have to spend a lot of time negotiating with each other. Mm -hmm. And sometimes 
the people that work for you, if you're in a management role, might try and play you off against each other. So that, that might be a flip side. How did you find your job share partner? Actually, I was partnered with her. So it was quite an unusual situation. Often people find each other. Mm. But I was actually partnered with her because I had a job share partner and she, she left. And so I needed another one. And, and my then boss recruited Michelle and said, you'll be a good fit. And she was absolutely right. Brilliant. We met in Starbucks over tea and cake. <laughs> yeah, that's so incredibly <laughs> lucky. Match made in heaven. Together yes, and then you perfect. ended up being such a team. What an excellent story. Also, I feel like there's an app in there somewhere to match make people for job shares because that sounds ace. It's funny you should say that, but we used to actually run a speed dating service when we worked at the cabinet office together for um, professional communicators looking for job share partners. And we ran it exactly like a speed dating service. So you would come along and you'd have a number and you'd talk to people. Because you're absolutely right, there is a need to try to find something how you worked in the cabinet office. But on the show, we're also really interested in the benefits and challenges of working outside of central government. So whether that's a province in in Canada or a state in Australia. And you started in your current job as head of delivery at Hackney Council in London last year. Could you describe a bit about the job and what the scope of the role is? Yes. So I work in the ICT team um, and I look after the agile delivery team and I also look after uh, contracts and procurement. And I also look at how we are building a pipeline of talent across the whole of the team. So, So all the teams in ICT and thinking particularly about how do we attract talented young people across Hackney to come and work with us. So Hackney Council itself has a has a remit and a, a real drive to create job opportunities and economic growth in Hackney. And part of that is a very ambitious apprenticeship programme across the council. So ICT are part of that. So we have a, our first cohort that we recruited last year where we have 21 apprentices. They all either live in Hackney or went to a Hackney school. They're quite a variety of ages. They're mostly young people, but we have a variety of ages. And we're using that cohort and that approach to think about how we are going to tackle the challenge of how do we recruit the right people when we need them. You know, everyone working in digital technology, I think, faces the same problem, which is there is a skills shortage. You're competing with the private sector. We're in Hackney. We're right on the edge of the city of London. So there are lots of firms out there looking for talented people. We're, we're one amongst them. So how do we grow our own pipeline of talent? How do we develop them? How do we develop the people we have? How do we think now about what we're going to need in three years' time? So not just thinking about what do we need to recruit next week, but actually in three years' time, what are the skills and capabilities we're going to need and how are we going to make sure that we've got people coming through? So one of the things I'm working on at the moment is Hackney has a programme called Hackney 100 where they offer paid work placements to young people in Hackney. And so we're hosting five of those And the idea behind that is that we're going to get the apprentices to host them and to be the mentors, but also we're we're targeting young people who might then want to apply for apprenticeship in two years' time. Yeah, that's so cool. It's also really nice to hear about a programme which is looking so far in advance. I think often when we think about digital skills, it's often a sort of stopgap and we go desperately scrambling for really highly qualified contractors who often 
don't necessarily represent multiple demographics. We know, and we talked about a lot on the podcast uh, about how it's hard to build a diverse pipeline. How are you using the apprenticeship program to tackle problems of underrepresentation? I'm really glad you asked me about that. In the first cohort, we recruited 21 apprentices, six of whom were women. That's not bad for digital technology, actually, as a gender balance. It's not good enough, though. So in the second cohort, I wanted to be more like 50-50. So we are really focusing on how do we attract young women into the apprenticeship program. In terms of other diversity, we're going to offer a couple of supportive placements for new neurodiverse students we're always looking at how does the makeup of the team the whole team reflect the diversity of the borough as a whole and going back to your thinking you said something about um, highly paid contractors we, we work with local digital agencies and we do have contractors as well because we also have a skills gap and we fill that but whenever we work with an agency or a highly paid contractor we, as part of what they bring, we want them to bring um, knowledge transfer and mentoring. So not just the job they're doing, but actually what are they going to leave behind? Who are they going to train whilst they're here? Who are they going to pair with? Who are they going to work with? We have a, an agile delivery manager at the moment who's awesome, and he is doing some mentoring with some other teams who haven't worked in that way before. Definitely, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's almost, if you weren't to do that, you'd just continue to perpetuate the problem and contractors would continue to have to be brought in at short notice and in years to come. So that's, that's great. I also wonder if it actually makes the placement more attractive to contractors. I don't know, because I've not I've ever done contracting, but I wonder if it is, there is something soul-destroying about coming in, doing a thing, going home again, and not, never really feeling part of the team or never really feeling part of a bigger thing mm. that you're trying to do. And certainly my experience with some contractors I work with at ACAS was the feedback was it was so much nicer to work in a team where the team really valued us, but also really valued what we were bringing and what we were teaching. Yeah. Um, and that's a model that, we, that, that Hackney was also doing, which is one of the reasons I was attracted to come and work here. Mm. And it's great to hear that they're all mainly local agents, digital agencies as well. So that probably adds to the, the sense of purpose. So we're going to segue a little bit for a moment into One Team Gov as the One Team Gov show. And we know that you got involved with the One Team Gov community back in, in the early days, although it's not been going for too long. And you've been leading the movement within local government in the UK and bringing people together around that. What drew you to One Team Gov and what do you hope to get out of it? So what drew me was the absolute commitment to we're all here to design or deliver public services as well as we possibly can for, so that the users can do the thing that they need to do. And we're all committed to working in a different way in order to affect that. I worked in civil service long enough to have witnessed some really bad practices and some really wasteful things and some poor behaviours and cultures that you, you think, what well, it doesn't need to be like this. So I guess it's that it doesn't need to be like this. And actually, there's a whole willing group of people who all think that we must be able to do this differently. Definitely. And in local government, there were already people, really great people, obviously, from local government getting involved. I want to make sure that Hackney plays its role in 
helping to make that whole movement grow. So I've hosted one breakfast here. I'm going to hopefully host another one. And we're hosting um, an event called Bureaucracy Hack in July, which is awesome. I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased that we're able to do that. Tell us a bit about the Bureaucracy Hack. Well, firstly, I really like to be able to spell bureaucracy because <laughs> it's really difficult. I get it wrong every time. So we came out of a, a group of like-minded people really chatting around why are some of these processes that we have to deal with day to day so difficult? Why is it so difficult to get a thing done internally? Back office processes often. We sort of put up with them. They're taking time out of our day. If we're, if we're here to do something professionally and actually we're spending time trying to fill in form or get something ordered or actually make a change to something, that's all time taken away from delivering for users. That's the idea. The idea is to think of or come up with collectively four or five bureaucracy type problems that we can try and solve in a day, get the right people around the table to think about and then come up with some ideas about how we might actually do it differently. And do you have that fully subscribed already as an event? Actually, I don't know. I, we've got a check-in on Friday, so we're meeting every Friday by a hangout to see whether or not um, to progress the event. But there's certainly been quite a lot of early interest. Okay. I think we can have around 100 people. Wow, okay, so watch this space, and if there are Bureaucracy openings, then we can that on Twitter. A very sexy topic to people outside of government. Speaking of other unsexy topics that we love to think about and talk about in government, another one is governance. For those of us who have worked in large bureaucratic organisations, it's easy for governance to be seen as a blocker rather than an enabler, as you were just alluding to with bureaucracy as well. You recently spoke about a vision of governance so that people would prefer to use it. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, I'd love to. Governance is a dirty word, isn't it? Or it's often seen as the thing that's stopping you doing what you really want to do. When I arrived in Hackney, I talked to Rob Miller, our director of ICT, and uh, Matthew and Henry, and they had already done a lot of work in this area they had thought about what wasn't working and tore it up it's not working for us and then started to think about how do we actually want to govern ourselves how do we actually want to work so I did some user research across the team I started thinking about what what actually is governance what does governance actually do for us and why do we need it I read some brilliant stuff um, that Richard McLean had written he currently works at Elsevier was at the Food Standards Agency he put together a really good reading list around governance. I wasn't the first person to really think about it. And I was also thinking about agile governance and the, and the agile principles and the agile manifesto. So I did that user research and I uncovered some really interesting things, one of which is actually that realisation that we do need it. We all need governance because without it, it feels really chaotic. And actually, you're not quite sure that you're doing the right thing. You're not quite sure you're doing it to the right standard. You're not quite sure whether you should be doing it or whether you should be doing something else. So we do need governance. But I also believe that we are very quick to put in layers upon layers of governance to fix a problem rather than fixing the actual problem. We came up with um, some governance principles and we wrote them down and we talked about them and then we said to the teams and to, to everyone, these are our principles, this is what you need to work to. So they are things like thinking about agile governance you know, the team is best placed to make a decision. 
So you should be making the decisions. If what you want to do affects more than one team, then you should be talking to the other teams about it, and then you should make a decision. If it affects all of us, and it's a really big decision, then we probably do need to have a more formal meeting or a more formal discussion, and that's fine. The other thing we did was start to write down how we do things at Hackney. So we've got a whole series of guides that are created by the teams called How to Hack It. How to Hack It that are being generated because someone has done a thing and thinks someone else is going to need to do that. So rather than them struggling, I will show them how to do this. They're short and they're user-centred and they're, they're living documents and they're iterated. So yeah, so governance as a service, or governance so good that people prefer to use it. So then I wrote a blog post about my thinking and about what we've done. It was by far the most popular blog post I've ever written, by which I mean over 200 people. Yeah, that's age. I would never, And then that led me to start talking about it. You would get 200 reads on a blog post about governance. That just shows how good it must have been. So since I wrote that one post, I've been thinking more and more about governance and more and more about the link between governance and leadership and governance and culture. And I, I gave a talk at Agile in the City last week. And one of the things I said was, and someone had said this to me, so I did not, I, I can't take credit for this. You get the governance you deserve. I thought it was a really good phrase. It got me thinking about, well, Actually, that's right, because if your leadership is one of command and control, then you will have lots of governance. If your leadership is one of servant leadership or enabling people to make the best decision they can or empowering people, then you can have less governance. And equally with culture, I think there's a really big link between the culture that you are instilling and the team culture you have and the leadership yeah, culture you have. how much the of a theme it is on the podcast about how a lot of the good changes that are made are just by hiring amazing people and letting them be amazing. But that's obviously incredibly hard to do, especially in a really competitive environment like London. I was going to say, what's yeah, that's worse is so hiring true. amazing people Crushing and not letting them be amazing. That's the worst. Continuing on the theme, though, of governance and your work in Hackney, we saw that you're also chair of governors at a primary school. What's that like? That is brilliant. It's been brilliant. I'm about to step down, actually, after quite a few years. What's brilliant about it is it gives you a really good indication or really good experience of what life is actually like in a frontline, inner-city primary school that is trying to cope with all sorts of societal things that are coming through the door, trying to think about how to implement the latest thing from the Department of Education, trying to think about teachers and how to recruit, trying to think about what's best for the children, what's best for the parents, how to engage with a variety of communities. And it's also really interesting to lead a group of volunteers. That, that's an experience in itself. That sounds absolutely fascinating and a, and a good way to complement work in any local community. We read a brilliant blog post by a woman called Nadine in your apprenticeship scheme, and she described you as the epitome of girl boss and said that you had inspired them to take up space in places that, and I quote, weren't created for women. What did you mean by that? And how do you bring your best feminist self to work? 
So I think what she meant by that, and I don't want to speak for her, but what she meant, I, t- I try really hard to role model. It's okay not to know something. I could very easily feel that from a communications background rather than a technology background, that I don't have a right or I can't talk about technology or that I don't know enough about it to have a valid opinion. So what I try really hard to do is role model that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I have a different background and different strengths that I'm bringing to this job. In terms of the taking up space, it's about role modeling that you can come from any background and any career route in and awesome. still be able that's to something that's really really hard to, to do often so it's really good to know that you're role modeling that and I think we all try and do that but it means that you put yourself in a vulnerable position which is often a really hard thing to do but also shows a lot of leadership and we've had quite a lot of conversations on the show about that at the end of our interviews we always ask for some recommendations from our guests do you think you could recommend us one podcast to start that isn't this podcast? So I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but I do have a recommendation. I have a, an ex-colleague who used to work with me at ACAS, and her name is Janet Ogana. She works at the Cabinet Office at the moment, but she also runs an organisation called Janet's List. And she, as part of that, she has a podcast called Making Money Moves, where she interviews and they talk about money, um, slick moves and entrepreneurial business that's really good that sounds really good and it's also one that I don't listen to so I would definitely add that second could you recommend us a Twitter account not so many to recommend that I would follow Dan Barrett I'm sure he's been recommended before very funny but also very thoughtful so he talks a lot about data he talks a lot he does a lot of self-reflection he talks about leadership and he also writes week notes which is an awesome thing so I would definitely recommend his yeah we love Dan on the show and a book you could recommend so I've just read a book called Accelerate which is about embedding DevOps culture and it's written by a, a whole bunch of people one of the authors is Nicole Forsgren. That was one of the most accessible books about DevOps that I've come across. And as I said earlier, I'm not from a very technological background. So if it was accessible to me, it would be accessible to other people. That's great. Yeah, I should definitely read that because I work in that area. And it's still a bit opaque to me sometimes, even after a few years. <laughs> and the other thing I would recommend is that Louise Cato has just published a Trello board, an open public Trello board of suggested reading, which would be worth having a look at. I think it's got some really cool titles on there, really good things. Finally, a charity or social enterprise that we could support? Yeah, so a friend of mine runs um, a website called Small Actions Today. It's a project and a challenge that she set herself. Can she come up with a thing a week that you could do, a small action you could take to make the world a slightly better place? So I would recommend that. It's not technically a charity, but there's a lot of charity stuff on it. Sounds like something we should all do regardless. That's great. Thank you so much, Kate. It was brilliant to hear about your work at Hackney and how you got into that role. Get a bit of feminist inspiration as ever. So thank you for taking the time to chat to us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much, Kate. That was really cool. So, Kylie, what did you think about that? 
what our listeners won't have seen and won't have heard is what it was like actually arriving at Hackney Council building to do that chat with Kate. What's amazing, if I can describe it, it's a building right in the centre of the local community. It's just next door to the town hall. And when you walk into this essentially sort of large office block, right at the bottom of that centre is a huge open space just on the ground floor. And that is Hackney Council's contact centre. So it's it's literally where people go if they have trouble accessing government services or if they need some help. So it was full of people kind of queuing up or milling around or reading books or waiting to see someone at reception or to get help with a form. And all of that is right in the middle of the building. And all of the floors above it are shaped in a horseshoe around and overlook that area. So literally all of the people who work at Hackney Council, including Kate's team, physically look out onto the users that they're serving at all times. A brilliant start, even before we got into the interview itself. Yeah, random Kamala fact. Me and my wife, Caitlin, actually had our civil partnership at Hackney Town Hall. So I very much remember being a user and being in that building and having to go up and talk to the people who basically register you for your civil partnership. And it is a really cool experience. So shout out to Hackney for having that service right in the centre of town. Absolutely. And what did you think of some of the conversation we had? Yeah, I thought her early career was really interesting. I love hearing about when comms professionals move into the digital sphere, mainly because they bring such strong skills. And I think Kate was really good at talking about some of those skills that had come out. The main standout for me, though, was really Michelle. Like, I am desperate to have a version of Michelle to do a job share. So please, listeners, get in touch if you want to. I just love the idea of them applying for a job as one person. And I think it must be really good to have someone who just has your back and has another pair of eyes on the decisions you make and how to get stuff done. Yeah, definitely. That was also a huge standout for me. I loved your idea of a dating app and it turned out that Kate had actually already done some speed dating at the cabinet office for finding job shares, which was brilliant. What an amazing way to balance commitments in life and interests in life that are not just about the job that you're doing but also allow you to to take that time for other interests. It must have been so lucky, but also absolutely the right people to have got together to do that role because it was clearly so successful going for 14 years. If I were to move into spending less time on my day job, I would absolutely hope that I could do something like a job share. That was great. Everyone go forth and look at flexible working options because that sounds wicked coming back to what I was saying at the beginning there about the service centre really having users at its heart that sense of community was so prevalent through everything that Kate was saying which I just found so interesting. Kate's our first person from a local government that we've interviewed whether that's as we said provincial or, or state level whichever terminology we use in our countries around the world and it was so fascinating to see someone like Kate who has been in both worlds talk so strongly about that sense of community. And it came through absolutely everything that she spoke about, from service delivery to the way that they're aiming to have their team be representative of the diversity of that area. What did you think? Yeah, I loved when she talked about the 
pipeline for a pipeline, which was essentially the apprenticeship program she had implemented in Hackney. What I liked was how Kate was trying to put in place interventions that would last years and years and years, as opposed to quick fixes that we often see, I think, especially in central government. I was just reading the Stack Overflow survey that came out yesterday, and it said that 90% of its respondents were still men. And so it just shows that even with one of the most used websites for developers, there's still this big gap that we really need to have interventions to fix. And what I loved was Kate said that she was trying to make sure that this program essentially reflected the diversity that was in Hackney and knowing Hackney it just made me feel really positive and optimistic for the future knowing that was in place. For sure the other part that was really impressive just logistically was that she's able to make the case for thinking that far ahead. Three years ahead is a really long time in a context where you're constantly dealing with things like business cases or strategies or one to two year maximum chunks of money that you have to bid for. And it must be so skillful to be able to navigate that kind of bureaucracy behind the scenes and make the case for doing something that is going to realise benefits up to three years ahead. And I was thinking as I left the office, I had just come from my job at Citizens Advice, where I had been literally just today trying to find someone to be able to fulfil a piece of work for the next three months. And the fact that she's able to look three years ahead was just so impressive. So I can only hope that the ambition of where I work and in my team, that we're able to get anywhere close to that, because that was brilliant. Yeah, that was really brilliant. Kind of related to that, I loved when she talked about the bureaucracy hack she'd put on. And also when she talked about you get the governance that you deserve. I think it was Tom Lusmore who came on the show and talked about digital being the culture, practices and processes and technologies of the internet age to respond to people's raised expectations. And I think like often we forget about the processes and Kate really puts those front and centre. And it occurred to me that actually in positions of leadership, that is maybe one of the biggest and bravest interventions that you can do in an organisation to really try and pull your people out of that rut and question why you are doing the things that you're doing and to really trust your people to make those decisions and to talk to other teams and to raise things when they're not going so well. You get the bureaucracy you deserve is a really good challenge for all of us. I was just thinking about that straight after the interview, like how am I trying to change the bureaucracy in the organisation I work in? A lot of the governance stuff has been so influential that Kate has written about. I mean, she mentioned that 200 people had read her blog post, but I can think of countless times that people have had conversations with me about that topic. She raised it in such an insightful way. So thank you so much to Kate for making governance something that people are actually excited to talk about. And of course, just to finish up, another brilliant feminist on the show. What did you reckon about that part? Yeah, what was it? Ultimate girl boss? I love that part. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's probably the highest compliment you could have got. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I would be putting that on my LinkedIn profile straight away. And what I loved was that that person who was speaking about Kate, she called out something that Kate had said, which had made her feel really empowered, which was about being able to step into spaces that women aren't traditionally in. And that comes back to what you were saying about, you know, the Stack Overflow example, And still, this industry and the technology industry, particularly within 
government and the tech for good space is still so dominated by one gender out of the spectrum. It's just fantastic to see that people within Kate's teams have been so empowered to, to do that differently. And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>